Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. I'm very pleased to have on today Dr. Tamara Gray, founder of the Rabada Institute. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. Um, when I initially told people about these series uh, where I interview different guests, kind of representatives and leaders of various Islamic institutes to kind of get an idea of the philosophy of Islamic education in the West. A lot of people, because I was asking for potential guests and a lot of people suggested you and your institute's name came up quite frequently. Uh, they spoke so highly of you. So again, I'm quite happy and grateful to have you on today. Thank you. It's nice to be remembered. And I, it makes me feel good that people think of me in the world of education because I'm really passionate about it. And I, I like that. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm, before we start, I just wanted to ask if you could kind of tell us a bit about your own intellectual journey. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, um, my intellectual journey, I, I barely, I, I wonder where to start, actually, because I think I have to start when I was, when I graduated from high school, in high school, maybe, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, I went to a suburban high school in Minnesota, very much a, a public school. I think it was a, a good public school. We had a couple of really good teachers, some not so great, just sort of your typical uh, institution. But I did really well. I was smart. I really be felt myself that I could solve problems intellectually. I don't mean me personally, but that problems could be solved intellectually. I mean, yes, I probably did at 17 think that I personally could solve all of the problems of the world intellectually. But I really believed that. And I, when I went to university straight out, straight out of high school, I went to a local university that's called McAllister, McAllister College. And it was a very, for the Midwest, it was a really rigorous school, lots of good thinking that happened there. And I became a Muslim in the very first year that I was there and truly the it was be, well there are always many layers to why a person becomes a muslim but one of the great instigators of it was a class i took called introduction to the old testament along with another class i was taking that had to do with foundations of thought and philosophy and such things and so my thinking really grew in undergraduate school and I, it was a really interesting time for me because it was the 80s. I was growing intellectually, academically, and I was a new Muslim. And there wasn't a whole lot, there weren't a whole lot of ways to grow for me intellectually. Of course, I didn't speak Arabic. I couldn't read Arabic. And the material that was available at the time to learn from was dismal, if I can be complimentary because that's the complimentary word for most of what was available and very depressing and so it was a really sort of strange growth where i am a young person really growing academically in school growing spiritually but i can't i couldn't grow academically in my faith and then the i let me see so i graduated i did get married and I married a man who was partially Syrian. And one of the reasons is because I had this idea in my head that I would be able to 
spend time in Syria and learn there. And I mean, that's a running joke between the two of us. So I don't mean that as any sort of, um, you know, diss to him at all and his own <laughs> personal qualities that he brought to the marriage. I just mean that as a young person, I really did sort of look around and say, well, let me see the different Muslim countries in the world. Where will a woman, where could a woman benefit intellectually the most? And at the time, I really saw Syria as being that place. And so then I, 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 I was already a believer in education. When I graduated under, from undergraduate school, I had a degree in political science with an emphasis in policymaking and a primary emphasis in educational policy. I also had a, a second field of study in education. And so I was already a really strong believer in the importance of and the power of education to change the state of, it, of an individual, but also a community, a culture, a society, which these things are going to be defined in different ways, of course, which is why I use all three of those words. I really, and I'm still very passionate about education in this way. So when I went to get my master's degree, I studied curriculum. And the reason for that was because of my passion for education. I wasn't, my husband was encouraging me at the time to think about a doctorate. I wasn't ready yet. I wasn't sure what field I really wanted to devote. A doctorate is such a, it's such an intense degree. I wasn't sure yet what field I wanted to devote that much time to. And partially because as a younger Muslim woman, I was really feeling a hunger to learn about my religion. So I got a master's degree in curriculum theory and instruction. And we soon after that moved overseas. I'm skipping some little details here and there, but we did move to Damascus where I quickly found a way to use my background in education to work and learn more about just learning, learn more about learning in places like Damascus and elsewhere. I, I used to consult around the Middle East as well. And of course, when I stepped foot into Damascus, one of the first things I did was begin to study classical Islamic learning. And this was heaven for me. I was just enthralled with the beauty of it, the ability to quickly learn Arabic and quickly throw myself into the study of older texts, newer texts, to sit at the foot of a teacher and listen and learn, to watch other students around me growing and expanding, memorizing Quran, working on Tajweed, working on all these things. And so just to not overly, not over talk, and my, that journey, I was living there for 20 years and that learning journey, even though I did start to teach while I was there, that learning journey really continued very, very much until the last moment when I left in 2012, I, I came to the United States thinking I was only going to be here for five months. The naivete of it now is just really silly. Perhaps I was just telling myself that story to make me feel better. And of course, it began to last much longer because I had come here because of the unrest, the war and such things. And when we saw that things were stretching out, I had put my son in high school here by that time. My husband really encouraged me to go back and do a doctorate. And by this time, I was really 
to be honest with you, I was not feeling a real need to enter into a sort of Western institutions again. I felt like I had grown a lot. I still was learning. I don't think you ever stop learning when it comes to Islamic studies and things like this, Arabic, Quran. Um, but he really encouraged me. And, and one of the things that many of my friends were saying to me is that as a woman in the United States, to have the DR in front of your name really makes a difference. And if, I, I, if I'm going to stay here for a long time and teach anywhere, I probably would need it. So I sort of cast my, my line, if you will, to use a fishing metaphor since I'm living in Minnesota, out to just a couple of different local universities. And I was really blessed because I was able to enter into a program at the University of St. Thomas, a program in leadership. And it was, it was as though the program had been made for me. Because here I was with all of this very, very traditional learning, but I really didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know about all of the qualitative and quantitative methodologies of research. I didn't know so much about Western theory around sociology, education, leadership. Uh, so, I mean, there, there was so much I didn't know. And this program, it was almost, I feel like someone wrote it one time, long time ago, just for me. And it was wonderful. So I completed that program in 2019. And that's my, I think that's, I'll end there with my intellectual journey, although I, I, I'll end with the story of it because certainly the intellectual journey continues for me. I'm, I think of education as candy for the brain. I love to take classes. If I could take, I, I would go back and do another bachelor's just for fun, if it was free. I would do that in a, in a heartbeat. Another master's, another doctorate. I just love it. I love, I love learning. Understand. Thank you so much. Um... You're, you're considered an authority on fiqh, hadith, tafsir, um, all these different subjects. But it seems that whenever I hear your name, it's often associated with the study of the prophetic uh, biography. I mean, is this correct? Uh, is this something special, something that you, I guess, gravitated more toward? I think one of the reasons that that association is made, and I'm, and what an incredible honor, what an incredible honor, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Forgive me for any for my shortcomings in such a beautiful association, but it's because I'm a co-translator of an incredible book, which now is really the book with the most detailed account of the Prophet's life, Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik in the English language. So we were a team of three, and we worked while the scholar who wrote the book was still alive. We worked with her in making sure that our translation was accurate and close to the as close as possible to the what was intended and yeah it's a two volume work and I'll, another thing i it's i think it's partially because i'm a co-translator but also the act of translation is something that really brings you into the living of that text I remember for uh, sitting for hours with the team and sometimes by myself just contemplating or talking about a single word or a phrase or a sentence, etc. And really looking at what is the meaning that is intended, what is the, what and then really learning so much about the layered meanings of some of the things that the Prophet said 
or did or his interactions with people. And that process of translating really changed me. It changed me in how I feel about the prophetic biography. It, to me, it's a living, again, astaghfirullah, I mean, of course, the, um, the claim is not, I, I feel shy to claim such a thing, but it became, it's really living to me. Like when I think about the life of our beloved, I think about a life. I don't think about a flat human being that said some things that we need to listen to, did some things that we need to do. I really think of a three-dimensional community. And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons people think of me when they talk about the Sira. But as I said before, it's a great blessing. And and uh, one of my co my co-translators are were amazing and and are still mashallah yeah thank you and for for interested uh, listeners the the title of the work which i'll include in the in the podcast uh, pages a compendium of the sources on the prophetic narrative so i just wanted to go ahead and, and get started with the questions that i had what is the purpose of education in general and in your opinion what is the goal of islamic education educational institutes in the west well, so the purpose of education in general, in my view, is to better someone. If education doesn't better a person, then it's failed. And of course, there are many different ways that people improve or better themselves. Sometimes it's through skills. Sometimes it's through knowledge. And I think historically, it was through skills, knowledge, and learning how to be a better person. And I really think the general purpose of education should be that. I don't know that it necessarily follows that at all times, but that's what it should be. And when it isn't, we fail. And so when we think about Islamic schooling, a weekend schooling, uh, schooling that happens in, in the week that is partial or what have you, and that schooling, that Islamic schooling that lays claim to its roots being part of this incredible religion, that lays claim to being connected to the great person of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and yet doesn't set that example in the staff or administration or curriculum materials that it's bringing into the school, that's problematic. So I think the role of education in the West in Muslim environments for young audiences is to, for every audience actually, I take that back. I think the, the role for every audience is to fulfill the mission of the Prophet And the mission of the Prophet was to upbring. It was to, you see him in his life really bettering every one of his companions financially uh, in, in their values, in their virtues, in how they interacted with people, in how they managed money, in their priorities, in the things that they learned. We have companions uh, that learned languages, companions that learned, uh, of course, Islamic, all the Islamic things like fiqh and all of these other things. but. From from the mundane to the sacred, we see the Prophet ﷺ interested and encouraging of the people of Medina and later Mecca and Yemen and all of those who entered into Islam. So our role, I would say, as educators 
or if we want to say the role of education in the West is to provide for Muslims an opportunity to grow spiritually, to learn their religion in such a way that they can, it becomes something they lean on, not only in times of trouble, but when faced with Islamophobic mm, claims or accusations, that they they don't waver, they don't have doubt that those, they are like mosquitoes that come in the night in Minnesota, something to be slapped away and just a little irritant. And that the that we as an ummah become what we are meant to be, of those who call to what is beautiful and push back on what is ugly. And education should make us those people. And, and of course, education includes the students. So we can't always blame education for a failure in an individual, but the community should reflect the general work of the educational institutions. And when it does, then we can measure our success. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and then you do have an institute, a Rabata Institute. I was wondering if you could tell us more about, I mean, I guess, what kind of caused you to, to create it? What, what makes it unique? When I was first came here in 2012, and I thought I would only be here for five months, it was Ramadan in August. And I had some students who had come to Syria while I was living there. And they saw that I'm here and they said, hey, let's let's take you around the United States and introduce you to people. And you can give talks or lessons or classes. And I, I don't know, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought, oh, let's do it in Ramadan. And I, I know what I was thinking because my I was staying with my family and my family, God bless them. They're wonderful, but they really struggle with Ramadan. And of course, in August, it's a long day. And for them to be watching me all day long, not eating, not drinking for this very long day, I just I just thought, oh, it's much easier just to be traveling and speaking. But of course, it was a very physically demanding tour. However, during that, the, the futuh, I think, the openings and the lessons I learned in that month, I really... I, I met Muslim women all across the United States and some parts of Canada. And I was really surprised. I hadn't lived in the United States or in North America for 20 years. And I hadn't really come back a lot either. I had come to see my family for very, very short stays. And so here I was, and I really was surprised with my own personal, um, let's say, assessment wrongly or rightly, that nothing had really changed for women in 20 years. This is in 2012. Of course, I'm sure that that isn't correct, but that was my feeling. Wow, the status, the state, not status, the state of Muslim women in, in Muslim community really hasn't changed much. 20 years, and I wasn't seeing any change. I, I was really surprised. And I also found a lot of general lack of knowledge about Islam and the the beauty of Islam, just lack of, of, of pride in this faith and lack of understanding of certain important principles and certain important practices. And so seeing that and then subhanAllah, so I was here for five months, as I said, and then as we as I quick as we as a family quickly began to realize that it would be longer. 
when I got back, it was September, I started to look for a job. Well, if you are in education, you know that you don't find jobs in September. That's not the time to look for a job or to, uh, to find one, really. And also, I had been gone for so long that I really didn't know how to apply for a job. But all of this was, subhanAllah, it was a plan because, from Allah subhanahu ta'ala because you can only clean your house so many times. And so after I'd done that a few times and I hadn't found a job, I and I was still mulling over what I had learned in that month. And I had also been doing some reading about the development of different religious groups in the United States. And I was doing that on purpose because I was trying to think about what are some ways that we can, as a Muslim community, learn? What are some things we can learn from other communities? And what might we do to improve our our lot, if you will? And so at that point, and, and I just want to say that I had lived in Damascus for 20 years. I was so illiterate when it came to the to internet. I was so illiterate. I had just begun a Facebook page and I thought this, my students were just appalled, like, oh my God, you're on Facebook. And it was, I was so unfamiliar with all of it. So an online learning was very far from my personal experience. But there I was and I was really thinking deeply about these things and it occurred to me that well one thing that we can that I can do I, I need to add another piece here which is I was also struggling emotionally with the move and struggling with my feelings about being away this idea that all these people that I loved were still in Syria the war was really bad at this time I had what's called survivor's guilt and I knew that I could do nothing. Like it was a, it was very clear in my mind that I could do nothing about Syria, nothing about what was happening there. In fact, my opinion wasn't really welcomed because I'm not Syrian. And I don't say that with any sense of bitterness. It was just a fact. And so I, I remember it being in the living room of the house I had rented over in West St. Paul. I was right next door to my brother. God bless him. He was such a help that first year. And I remember sitting in my living room and thinking, well, I can't do anything about what's happening to Syria, but I can use what Syria gave me to do something to help the situation that I'm seeing here in the United States, North America, and it turns out globally, really, regarding uh, women's education. And that's really how Rabata was born. I we We started with one pilot class and I had a student who had also moved out of Syria. She had moved to Dubai and subhanAllah, I talked to her about what I thought we could do. And we built the idea of Rabata as a whole uh, and also Ribat as a project of Rabata. Now, there, it wasn't just her. We had a couple of other students who were, who were that first board, if you will, of Rabata as a whole. But Ribata as a project, as an online academic institute, was that student in Dubai, subhanAllah. And so, of course, nothing can be done by one individual. We were a group of women just really reaching to try to see what are the things that need to be done. And after we started, so the first year was one pilot course, and I was learning how to do online teaching. And it was such a success. I was taken aback by the power of the internet. 
And so I began to study and think about digital religion and digital learning, both of these things. And I also began to think about, well, what do we need to support this learning? And so Rabota grew very quickly in the beginning. We went from an online institution immediately to a publishing company, and then we opened a space in Minnesota that was the local bookshop just so that we could have a place to sell our textbooks and then any other books that we had put there at that time. And then we moved into curricula and developing curricula. And this last year, uh, in the middle of COVID, we accelerated some of our plans and we opened up a teen program and also a children's program. Nisha, thank you so much for that. And so you, you said this is an online institute. I mean, do you see any advantages of having something purely online? Well, I, yes, I actually do at this point. And I know that this has been a tough year for people regarding the on, online living because we've been living online. And there are many, many of us, including myself, I'm an extrovert. Many of us are missing the face-to-face -face interaction that we used to have with our friends and our, fam our family sometimes too, and our loved ones. But the online world is real. And we as a Muslim community are in denial of this. We keep calling it virtual, not real. I can't wait till I can have something real. No, it is real. In fact, research in the 90s, in the 90s, in the 1990s, was already demonstrating how really real online community, online uh, things are in how they uh, interact with the human being. And so this is a real community. It's a real education. I see us as, uh, for women, ex ex incredibly advantageous because we have students who are surgeons. We have students who are mothers of four or five children, ages eight to infancy. We have students in every, you know, business, women, uh, mothers of older children, grandmothers, women in all different times of their life. And all they have to do is log in and they get to attend this class. And it's very convenient. It can be from a computer or a telephone or what have you. And really it's traditional knowledge with modern educational methodologies. And so when we're thinking about online education for global change, I think it's an incredible opportunity. It's a real it's a real gift where we can meet and talk to people from all over the world because of this incredible online online uh, opportunity. I'll say the word again. And when I was studying digital religion and really thinking about this, there's a lot of work out there around the idea of digital communities, around the idea of using digital spaces to help people grow. Most of that work is being done in the evangelical Christian community. And I was really taken aback by that because I, no, I, w I wasn't taken aback. I was, mm, maybe I was jealous for our faith where I said to myself, I mean, we have more of a right to this if we would just work and take seriously these this incredible technology that is out there today that we can use for all of the aspects of learning that I'm interested in, including terbia, including upbringing, leadership training, including straight up basic knowledge, including challenging academic questions. All of it, all of it can be done 
online using the tools that are available today. And, and these tools are growing every year, every single year, subhanAllah. Perhaps as a good point right now, I can just ask you a little bit about your curriculum and how courses and programs are structured. I'm also wondering, does your institute modify the traditional, the various traditional curricula to, to fit a Western context? Uh, so I'm just wondering what, like, if you could tell us a bit more about your curriculum. Yeah, so we have created, so again, just I, my master's was in curriculum design. So I have some expertise and then I also wrote a number of curriculum programs when I was living in Damascus. Those are not, those are curriculum programs written for children and they were mostly teaching English as a second language. But practice in the design of curriculum is practice in the design of curriculum. And so when we sat down to really look at how, what is what is our curriculum? What are we teaching? And I'm speaking here about our program for adult women 17 and over, because we took a different approach when we taught, when we did our teen program and our children's program. But when we sat down to really look at what are we going to bring here, we set first our learning objectives. So we did this in a very, those of you out there who have studied education know that we did this in a very formalized Western, if you will, educational sort of strategy where we said, we said, what do we want our students to know when they graduate with a religious leadership certificate? What do we want them to know and be able to do? Who do we want them to be when they graduate with a teaching about teacher certificate? And then also we asked the question, what about those who pop in for one class here and one class there? Because we wanted our program to be effective, both for those who were serious about learning and wanted to graduate with a certificate, and those who were not serious about learning yet, or maybe they never would be, but they just felt the need for a class or two. And so once we mapped out our learning objectives, then we mapped out the tracks. So we have a number of tracks, and this uh, answers partially your question, because we do teach very traditional Islamic tracks like Sira. And so Sira, the life of the beloved, we do that in an interesting way. We start out, this is just an example of how we, how we did all of them. I'm not going to go through all, don't worry. But so, for example, we start out a level one course in Sira doesn't start with learning about his life. One of the things that we noted is that many Westerners, when they're learning about the life of the Prophet وسلم, they really learn the battles. They learn sort of this, uh, I don't know what to call it, this, uh, I don't know, this um, history, if you will, that's based in Adir, Uhud, Khandaq, Fatah, Makkah. And these are very important incidents in the life of the Prophet and I, I mean no belittling of them at all, but his life is so much richer than that, and we don't learn to love him through the battles, or at least not a Western mind that is brought up in our post-World War II educational system that really is not going to look kindly. It does, it's not the same as a long time ago when people really looked at war as something that showed strength. And so that we, we said our goal for that level one class is to change the way people see the Prophet And so after much discussion and talking about it, we realized that the best way to find a new way to meet, if you will, 
the Prophet ﷺ is to meet him through the eyes of those who loved him the most. And so Sira 101 is actually not a class about his life, but rather a class about his companions. And we study them and we look, each one we study, we always, we, there's a lot of reminding about, let's look at the Prophet ﷺ through this person's eyes. And then we look at their life as well, of course. So we start there and then we moved, move on in level two to just picking some lessons from his life. So it's not his, still it's not his whole life. It's picking lessons from his life. Even looking now at the things that people have studied before, but looking at them in a pragmatic way, looking at these things like Badr and Uhud and such, and what are the lessons we learned today from those incidents? And how do we understand these things as well when we're without projecting our sort of 21st century value system back to 7th century Arabia? In level three, we do a full, complete, detail-oriented study of his life. And the textbook for that, of course, is the compendium that we referred to earlier. And then uh, level four is an is advanced uh, study of his life and looking at certain, uh, say, shubahat, yani the things that people might cast upon the Prophet ﷺ and really taking them apart and looking at it from, looking at his life from an academic point of view. But now we've got someone who's really rooted in his life. So that's not going to shake them to see these sort of uh, Islamophobic things. Rather, they're going to be able to create important papers, we hope. We're not at level four yet. Our students are still in level three. Or our highest level is still in level three. But we'll, they'll still be able to create papers and or they'll be able to create papers and such things that contribute to knowledge about the Prophet for others. So that's how we did it. Now, we also have tracks in uh, education. So, for example, if you there are you take the level one, two, three, four. If you're doing a certificate, we have tracks in history and geography. We have tracks in social science in general because we want our students to understand digital religion and digital communities, uh, as well as issues around women in general, women theory around uh, women's issues and such. And yeah, so we do the traditional. Islamic learning, we have Quran, of course, and of course, uh, fiqh and all of these. I don't, I, I don't want to like use the time to go through every single track, but that's how we managed it. So we took every track and we walked through the four levels. And I think I'll, I'll say one more thing about the curriculum, which is that it's a four leveled curriculum. So this is very traditional, not in the Western sense of a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or something because our assumption is that each level will take time. So we have had a few students who have just barreled through and finished two levels in a very short time, but that's going to be the exception, not the rule. In general, we do expect our students to take time and we appreciate that and I would say even almost prefer it because we want the knowledge to take hold and make those personal changes and grow that student in ways that will allow her to be a rising tide, part of the rising tide of female scholars, teachers, community stewards, and those who will really help us as a community create and preserve our own positive Muslim culture, prophetic culture. I'm assuming Arabic is a is is it a prerequisite or is it something oh, yeah. that you also teach? 
We teach it. I, 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 I can't believe I didn't talk about Arabic. Yes, absolutely. We teach Arabic and our Arabic program has been designed specifically for us. We have a couple of different people working on it. One of them is my student. She is a PhD candidate at Oxford University in the teaching of Arabic as a second language. So it's a very good program. We teach six levels and and anyone who were to fin who would finish the six levels would be able to study in Arabic at any Arabic university. I'm not saying with ease, uh, it would take a little bit of work, but just like anyone who's coming over here to the United States from another country begins to study at university in English, yeah, it's a little bit of a struggle at first, but they manage. They will be able to do that. And I've seen our students in level three write essays. Just, I'm just, I'm personally amazed at that. And we also have conversation classes. So we are heavy on reading and writing and conversation. And of course, for conversation, it has to be listening uh, and grammar and grammar. And yep, it's a, it's a very, we do, in order to graduate with a certificate, we, you must have finished a certain amount of that Arabic, each certificate has a different uh, requirement. But absolutely, because you really can't be successful at this work without Arabic. You need enough language so that you can, at the very least, check a translation. So if you're relying on translation, at least you can look back and see, does that pretty much fit what the Arabic looks like in order to really be successful at this kind of work? Absolutely, thank you. Uh, we touched upon some of these things earlier, but I just wanna give it to you. What type of students do you look look forward to having? Um, and what are you envisioning in terms of your students' career plans? Are you training them to be chaplains, um, academics in Islamic studies, academics in other subjects, um, professionals? Um, and how does Zorobata equip its students to be successful in these various fields and positions? Well, the students that we attract are really from so many different walks of life. It's I'm very pleased with that because that's the goal. I, I, as I said earlier, we really have both those students who are coming in to really seriously walk a track of a certificate track and become uh, Islamic teachers or about teachers or and also those who will be religious leaders. And then we have the others that are coming to take a class here and a class there. For those who are taking certificates, because I think that's really where your question ends itself, at least our hope for the certificate programs, those who complete a religious leadership certificate, my hope and my vision is that by the time I have a graduating class of religious women, religious leaders with a religious leadership certificate, our communities will be hiring local female resident scholars. We must do this as communities. We must be ready for this. And I think we are moving in that direction. We're beginning to recognize the importance of people over buildings, and we're beginning to recognize the importance of women in our communities. And so we're not, we're not quite there yet, but I am hoping that once our first graduating class graduates, that our communities will be ready and be looking for women who are ready to take on that role. So yeah, I do see them as working as local female resident scholars, wherever they happen to live or maybe to move to a place where they can serve and care for a community. Uh, in the Rabat Teacher Certificate, I really was very passionate. We were very passionate about graduating teachers who can teach children and teenagers in a healthy, positive way 
relying on solid educational theory and solid Islamic knowledge. And uh, we have graduated our first class like that. And our Dragonflies program, which is our own children's program, utilizes these teachers to teach in that program. So we started that and we do hope as well that they are able to teach in their local community schools. I really hope that that would be for pay. I know that oftentimes it's not, it's volunteer, Alhamdulillah. Either way, I'm confident that we're sending out into the community really good teachers who are going to give children a good positive experience at their Islamic school. And those children will grow up with those memories and hopefully be able to hold on to their deen no matter what uh, comes at them. And also when we're thinking about our students and what am I hoping to graduate or what am I hoping for these students, for the vast majority of our students, because we have a lot, we have over, I think, 3,000 students now. For the vast majority of our students who are not going to do a certificate program, I really hope that they will be community stewards. I really believe in women's secular education. I think that they need to get a degree. They need to be able to work. They need to be able to have an income if needed. And I don't mean by that that I am somehow not in support of women staying home as homemakers or mothers, not at all. It's a, it's a blessed thing to do in the, in the seasons of women's life. It is often not only necessary, but the thing that is the closest to the heart. But unfortunately in our day and age, the Islamic financial system that once upon a time had lots of support for women from fathers and uncles and brothers and such just isn't really working. Not that the system itself isn't working, but it isn't built into our culture. And so women are struggling financially. So many women are struggling financially. And I, and in order to overcome that hurdle, I really, I, this is one of the reasons why we are not seeking accreditation right now. I am not looking for women to have our degree as their only degree, but rather as their second degree. I like, I, I would like to see all of the students at Rivat have a first degree and we are a second degree, or we can be the first, and then they complete their second after, however it works. But I, I really encourage women to complete a secular degree as well so that they are qualified to work in any space or place that they may have to. And that can be in anything, nonprofit work, education, anything. But our, our program, which I'm very proud of, is meant to be something that fills our communities across the world with women who are teachers, scholars, community stewards, caring uh, sisters and aunts, neighbors, those who really walk in the footsteps of Rasulullah and are carrying forth the tradition of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen and the early Sahabiyat and Tabi'at of knowing their faith, being willing to share that and being devoted to the work of sharing that in community. I'm hoping you could tell me something about your faculty and just more generally what you expect of your faculty in terms of expertise, um, religious, philosophical alignment with the overall message of the Institute and such things. Yeah, so we are really quite particular about who teaches for us at Rivat. We definitely, of course, are looking not only for those who are well-studied, but those whose study is reflected in their practice 
And we have found since day one that we have to have very courageous women because they, for most of our instructors, they need to learn a whole new way of teaching, which is online teaching. So our faculty are, have, well, they are very enthusiastic. They care very much about the work and they're highly educated in Islamic sciences in general and oftentimes in something in specific as well. And they either have some sort of experience in educational methodology or they go through training with us around how to use our online programming, how to uh, be, let's say, more effective in online teaching and how to really reach students. There's one piece that I think we're really unique in, in and that is that we really believe and we talk to our instructors about this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who sends angels to the gathering in a room, let's say, if we're all in a gathering in a room, will send angels to surround those who are studying, let's say, the hadith of the Prophet That the internet is not a space that Allah subhanahu wa is not capable of doing the same thing in. And so just as we understand that if we are sitting in a classroom or in a masjid and we are all learning Quran together or hadith of the Prophet or any topic that the angels will surround us, we visualize as we sit in our homes across the world the angels, and we think of how enormous Angel Jibreel was when he, when the Prophet when he showed himself to the Prophet in his true form, that they surround us across the globe, and in that surrounding, we have a a true sense of what it means to not to be online and truly together. So back to the answer about the faculty, our faculty are. Uh, we've invited other faculty members. Sometimes some people that we've invited are have been too busy to join us. But in general, all of our faculty are volunteers. They all volunteer their time, uh, except for our Arabic instructors who we do pay. And other than that, our, all of our faculty, our Quran teachers, our Islamic studies teachers, everyone, are volunteer teachers. And they volunteer the time of pre preparing lessons, teaching, and also the correcting which is a lot of time so i just i like to mention not it's not just a lecture in the classroom it's also how are we preparing and how are we following up with our students i mean people have different ways of learning they have different goals and um, they may want to learn certain things more than others keeping this in mind how is the curriculum designed to augment the students engagement with different disciplines perhaps the student wants to focus more on I don't know, um, Islamic finance or, or something like this and wants to uh, combine their own background in finance or economics and, and be able to produce something. Does, does Rabata have, have an opportunity for students like this to kind of combine their secular learning with, you know, deep theoretical uh, sciences in, in, in Islamic studies to kind of produce something new? How does the curriculum accommodate such such individuals? So I'm really uh, appreciative of this question because one of the sadnesses, if you will, of the historical look back 
at the involvement of women in Islamic sciences is that we don't have a lot of the writing of women. We have very little actually of the writing of women. And of course, writing is what we call knowledge production. So it's, it is very important to me to provide a space for knowledge production. And certainly the best space for that is when our students can bring their academic knowledge, what they know from their studies elsewhere, whether they're a master's degree or their doctorate. We have lots of students who have doctorates and master's degrees or their undergraduate or what have you, and bring it to their studies, their Islamic studies, and create papers and such things that are studies of both, if you will. Uh, we don't do that in level one or level two. That would be a, a higher level let's say academic exercise. And at that point we do have, we do teach writing, academic writing. We teach students how to do the writing. And we are beginning now to start our Ribat journal, which will hopefully be a place where our students can publish and at least begin their, publish, their published uh, journey. Because of course we would want them to publish elsewhere as well. But I, I really believe it's important to have a place for them to go through the whole process of writing, peer review, and getting published so they know what that is before they reach out and struggle with other journals. So the answer, the simple answer is yes. Now the more complicated answer is we don't teach other topic areas. So we are teaching traditional Islamic studies uh, outside of social sciences. We do have a track in social sciences, but these social sciences that we're teaching are really meant to expand the horizons of our students who are rooted in their studies in Islamic studies, Quran and Arabic. So I, for example, we, we have a class in digital religion. That, that class in digital religion is meant to help them orient themselves in the landscape of digital religion so that they can become influencers and teachers and leaders in their own, let's say, space, in their own digital space, that so they can sort of mark out space in the, digital, in the digital world. We don't have classes outside of those things that we're focusing on. I mean, we don't have classes in physics or math or, you know, things like this. But we do have, as I said, history and geography, education. We do have classes in education and writing. Now, if somebody comes into us and says, well, I've already got a degree in education, they can waive our education courses if they wish to and just complete their Islamic studies courses and still get a Ribat teacher certificate. Because our goal in our education classes is to educate someone who's rooted in the theory and practice of education. And if they've already got that and they're licensed teachers, then we will accept that as part of the as part of the learning. But to the sort of deeper question of different learning styles or different interest areas, we have many workshops that we offer. We like to take the suggestions of our students and offer classes and things they're interested in. We like to offer timely things. So if something is happening right now and it's a concern and things that something that people are really thinking about, our students are asking for, we will have a class in that or we will have a workshop in it, workshop being a shorter class, something that lasts for a shorter period of time. Something we're starting this year are lightning classes. So in that way, you can take a whole semester of work in one intense week. And that's mostly thinking about those students who've suddenly decided they want to do a certificate, but they have they have to make up a few classes and they want to get it done 
Uh, yeah, so we do try to do our best to listen to our students and, and offer the things they're interested in. And as for diverse learning, we're doing our best. We do have a system, a pro, a, not a system or a process, a program where we are developing classes that are, we're doing one a semester and they're recorded so that in the future, our deaf and hard of hearing students will be able to access an entire certificate program it, that is uh, translated, it is an ASL, so it's assigned and also it is, oh dear, what is it called when it's typed out as well? I can't remember, but it's so it will have the transcript of the class as well as the, it will be signed so they can watch the class and understand and follow through. This is because I have a friend here in Minnesota who really educated me about the need for deaf that deaf Muslims have to learn about their religion, that their their opportunities are really slim, and it was just broke my heart. So we decided to provide classes for the community of deaf Muslims that are out there. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm glad that that that's something that you're thinking about. You know, I know I know you have a, a global audience. There's students that you have from all over the world, um, but I just wanted to focus right now on the students that are in the West in America. Now, the questions that we have here are different. You know, they're informed by a bunch of different things, different lifestyles, exposure to different things, especially now with the internet, social media, stuff like this. If I'm going to zoom in specifically uh, in terms of academics, how do you expect your students to engage with output from, from secular academics in the field of Islamic studies? Are the readings assigned from outside a more traditional framework? And how do you characterize the, the nature of the relationship between uh, the works of these scholars and, and your students? I mean, are they meant to reconcile it with what, they, what they're reading and learning? Are they meant to refute it or is there something else? So yes, the first, the, the simple answer is yes, we do assign some readings from some acad Islamic studies academics from uni Western universities. I teach, for example, well, yeah, so before I give examples, Many of those, however, begin in level three. I would say that level one and level two are really focused on developing a strong foundation in traditional learning. We will, we might have some articles there that we bring in to, but it will be to augment the learning, not really to challenge the students, not in level one and level two. There's an assumption there that there are missing holes. I think of Swiss cheese. When I was developing the curriculum, I used to talk about Swiss cheese a lot, that we're all a different piece of Swiss cheese. We all have holes in different places, and the only way to fill up everyone's holes is to just offer a really solid foundation in Islamic studies. And then once we've all sort of evolved from Swiss cheese to cheddar cheese, if you will, with no more holes, then we can start to manage and talk about and deal with some of the more challenging things. Now, that being said, I do teach a course called Foundations, Flounderings, and Faith, which addresses some of the challenges of today in regarding questions that Muslims have. But I don't, that's not done in an academic way. That is me answering questions. It's not giving students articles and things to go out and read and come back and discuss. I'm, I'm just addressing questions. That's a level one class. However, when we're looking at level three and level four, that's where we begin to talk about some of these more complicated issues and questions. 
Now, when we're the question of do we use work that's come out of the works of Islamic scholars in the West, I would say yes. I don't. We don't not use them. We don't have. Um, I would depend on the topic area and what is being studied. But certainly there are some really wonderful books that are out there. And of course, the anything that is, is done well and is done with solid academic work and research and is a solid, um, yeah, I, I already said it. So it's really a good uh, article or book or what have you, we would... I would be happy to include it in the curriculum and learn from it, maybe bring in the, the, the living researcher and talk about her or his research methods and talk about it. One of the things in the Aqidah class, I do really traditional Aqidah, but we also brought in a brand new book that's just been published. And I will be embarrassed now because I won't be able to remember the name of the author. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, that's about theology as imagination. I'm going to look it up. But that's for an example of the kinds of things we bring in from the those authors that are out there that are writing and writing really great things. So it really depends. I, I didn't find it right away. I'm so sorry. Martin, I think his first name is. So I'm distracted from the question. I'm so sorry. Modern Muslim theology, engaging God and the world with, let me see, with faith and imagination. So modern Muslim theology, you know, but we did look at that and we, we read the first chapter together. So that's just an example. I mean, there are other things that I, that I am willing, that I do bring in, that we do bring in. We discuss it. It's a curriculum. We're coming together in this. I'm not, we certainly are not teaching anyone to be afraid of or fully reject Islamic studies from our, uh, from those who are studying in Western institutions. In fact, there's some really great work that's coming out from these scholars, mashallah. But rather, like anything, to read it with, a, with the eye of the foundation that they have built in the first two years of, or two levels of their work with us. How should the educated Muslim, educated within these Muslim institutions, be prepared to interact with larger society? We should interact with the larger society in the way that the Prophet ﷺ interacted with the wufud or the delegations that came to him with great, incredible adab, absolutely incredible generosity and goodness and kindness and curiosity and uh, living as beautiful citizens of this world that has been created for us. And we should be responsible and caring for the environment and caring for the poor and caring for all these broken families and the addictions and all the struggling, sad people that are lonely and in pain. We should be, we should be there ready to help and care for our larger community. Our, our situation now is that our own Muslim communities are suffering from some of these same illnesses. And we haven't even been able to sort of rally ourselves to take care of our internal community of addiction and loneliness. And we're still arguing over whether women should be on the message board, like blows my mind. And yet, and, and, 
we need to get done with this silliness and be ready to stand up and open our massage to the wider community in feeding them. Mashallah, we have a wonderful masjid here in Minnesota that does this. They they have a whole program that feeds the whole neighborhood that they live in, that the that the masjid lives in. And that's what we need to be doing. And, and certainly I know there are plenty of masajid in the United States that have humanitarian things that they do. But I'm talking about something bigger. I'm talking about something more open-minded. I'm talking about something where we don't look with disdain upon people, but we look upon people with respect, with the respect and knowing that everyone is a creature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't know the end of anyone. And we have been given a responsibility to care about our environment, to care about the people around us, our neighbors, our colleagues, the students that we go to school with, the children of our neighbors, our, our family members, everyone, everyone. And really we have enough resources to do this. We just need to get over this sort of hump that we're in where we haven't been able to move beyond this place we're stuck in. And I, I, I believe education can do that. And I believe that individuals do that one by one when they link themselves together. So once we have enough people who are at that space, I, I think that we will have a change. We'll have a, it'll be a gentle turn where instead of being sort of embarrassed about where we are, we're going to be really proud of it and really uh, excited about the work that we're doing in community, in our Muslim community, outside of the Muslim community. So yeah, I mean, I set the bar really high, but we have to be walking in the footsteps of the Prophet I remember one of my teachers once was sort of thinking and talking and reflecting, I guess is the better way to say that. And she said, well, it's really something that we look at the Prophet and his work and his work was all about calling to people and bringing them to Islam. And our work has been to bring Muslims back to Islam. And we hope to find the day when we have raised a community high enough that our work goes back to that prophetic work of calling others to the joy of this faith, to the, the beauty that is part of Islam that, that rids the world of loneliness and oppression and uh, ugliness and all of these terrible, terrible problems that we're dealing with. Understood. Thank you for that. And and as we near our conclusion, I, I have one more question. Um, and this is a bit more general. You've spent a lot of time studying traditionally, um, studying just in general. I mean, you're, you're, you're a doctor. So I, I have to ask, in terms of Islamic studies today, I mean, what is the role of the scholar today in terms of scholarly output? Um, should we expect original works, abridgments, commentaries, or is preservation sufficient? I mean, should we be focused more on, on production or should our focus be elsewhere? I mean, I guess, are we dealing with too many different things and with too many different things in our plates? We can't necessarily, I guess, produce as much as we once were able to. But I mean, in your estimation as a scholar, um, what is the role of a scholar today in the United States? Well, the very first role is to make sure that we we don't harm anyone, that we help and that we heal and we don't harm. 
And I say that because a scholar of Islamic studies, we all have to be very careful that we never get in a place that we just think so well of ourselves, so highly of ourselves, that we are able to somehow not fulfill the very highest of virtue and behavior and qualities and character. So that's the first, because people look to the scholar to be a living example of what that person is a scholar of. And so a person who's a scholar of Islam, who lives in a way that is somehow immoral or unkind or mm, just uh, in, in any way doesn't hold to the very important principles of this faith has done great damage to the ability of people to trust our scholars, to trust our teachers. And so that's first. And second, I would say that it is important for us to hold on to tradition, but to be able to talk about our tradition in a way that makes it pragmatic and practical for people. We need to help people live this faith, not make it difficult for them. We need to not only help them live it so that it's easy, but help them live it so that it's joyful, so that it is the best choice, the, the wonderful choice, the choice everyone is excited. I used to say when Harry Potter first came out as a series, I used to tell my sister-in-law, God bless her, that um, I used to say, oh, we, we actually used to share in this feeling that we, you know, we're so jealous. We want... We want a book to be written, a fiction book to be written, and then we change. We want just the real thing, you know. The fiction, what Harry Potter, what was exciting about Harry Potter to people? That everyone wanted to go to Hogwarts, everyone. Everyone wanted to get the letter in the mail and go to Hogwarts. And I want our community to be so interesting and so exciting that people will walk by our message and say, gosh, I wish I could go in there. And of course, they should, they'll be welcome, but you know what I mean. like. I wish I was born a Muslim. I wish I could be part of that. That's what I want. And that's what the role of the scholar is, to make it a beautiful life. It's not just about ilm. It's not just about, it's a living faith. And the scholar's role is to live that faith in the best of ways and to set that example, and then to communicate it to people in such a way that it will be something they hope for and wish for and are willing to do the personal work they need to do in order to overcome those things that hold us back, in order to overcome those things that stop us from being the individual or the community that we need to be in order to uphold the life and the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And, I'm, and I just, I'm not saying that every scholar is going to be perfect, but we're all, that's part of the job, to do the, uh, the best we can to be the best we can. Thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Gray. Um... Before I conclude, I just wanted to ask, are there any projects that you're working on? Anything you'd like to tell the audience about? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I would like to, actually, because I, it helps to see how I sort of look at this whole thing as a well-rounded project. So as I was, uh, this whole time we've been talking about Ribat, our academic institute, but we recently studied, started Rabatines, which is these are mini masters, and my goal here is to give young teenage Muslim girls the opportunity 
to learn skills of adulting from Muslim women. Think about it. How many of our teens know many, many different Muslim women adults? Very, very few because they're a minority in so many places. I'm speaking here about the West. And this has been a really exciting program. We're really, I taught a class there how to, it's called the Spirit of Pasta. And I taught 25 young teen girls how to make homemade pasta. And we, that's literally what I taught them. And it was really fun and it was really wonderful. And that we also have courses in uh, like, dear God, I need a job, how to write a CV and to do a job interview. We have fun classes in art. We have serious classes in, as I said, adulting and skill building, how to make a budget, how to manage your time, how to apply for college and things like this. I'm really excited about that program because I, for me, it's part of helping our young teens grow into the productive teens that they want to be and we want them to be. Give them lots of mentors, lots of people to look up to so that they can see themselves in someone, someone who is a Muslim woman. And we also have our Dragonflies program, which is for children. This is our experiment in, well, more than an experiment. We are building our own curriculum and we are developing a program in growing the spiritual and character of children uh, with di many different tools that we have brought together. So we bring many different things together here in that program. But the emphasis on the Islamic education is helping the child grow spiritually and grow as a human being. We also do, I, I really want to mention that we do publish books and that's part of this whole idea of knowledge production. I want to, women to see themselves as authors. I want them to be able to write, and fiction, we have fiction books. This is another really important thing that we need to be publishing. We need to write books where the characters are normative Muslims, they have adventures and such things, and their problems are the problems of, of normal human beings because a lot of the books that have been written, fiction books, that have been written, or at least had been before 2012, before when we did the study of it, and we saw this great need, a lot of the books, the problem that the character was overcoming was her religion, or the main Muslim character was a terrorist. So it's really important to work in all of these different areas, and there, there are other areas that we're branching out into now, and of course, all under the world of education, but one of the things that I learned in my research is the importance of, of really, of education for young Muslim women. And that when they get that education, when they get that space of learning what they need to learn so they can be successful in whatever they seek to do, they really are able to blossom and shine. So thank you for that opportunity to talk a little bit about our programming. Our leadership and legacy program is also an exciting one. It's about curriculum. And yeah, I'm hoping to expand that as well. And we just hope to continue growing. We have Rabbi Tamashtin too. Oh, I have to tell you about that because in this world where women are struggling to go to a masjid and feel welcome, last Ramadan, we opened a masjid for Ramadan, a virtual masjid because it was COVID. So we opened a virtual masjid where women could come together and worship together. And at the end of Ramadan, one of our teachers at Ribat, she said, a masjid that opens shouldn't close. And so we kept it open. And 
that has just been an incredible blessing. We do weekly qiyams where women get up, about 150 women who get up at four in the morning and come together for nightly worship. We have many different programs in our virtual masjid. And that has been really exciting and a whole new, that's maybe a different podcast because that's a whole new discussion around the practical application of digital religion and how we can bring community together in something that is a virtual masjid. If you were to talk, if you were to, talk to those who come to our virtual masjid, they really will say, it feels like I'm entering a masjid and I love it. And it's such a blessing because no one is telling them, you know, don't come in or what have you, which unfortunately many women have experienced all sorts of unfortunate things. That's it. I'll, I'll, I'll stop now because there are more, but those are the main ones. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Again, doctor, it was an absolute honor to have you on. This was a very insightful conversation. And with that, I'd like to conclude the episode. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be here. Mm-hmm.